1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Hetty V. Williams, who is a fellow host on the New Books Network and assistant professor of African-American history at Monmouth University. We'll be speaking about her 2018 edited volume, Bury My Heart in a Free Land, Black Women Intellectuals and Modern U.S. History. Dr. Williams, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Now, to begin our conversation, uh, can you talk a bit about your research background uh, and how this project originated, uh, how you collected your
2: contributors and so forth? So my uh, background is in African African American history, 20th century focused, uh, and particularly civil rights era. Uh, interwar era, civil rights era, uh, and African American women, in particular. I would say my so my dissertation at Drew University focused on Black women in the civil rights movement, and I would say um, from that project, I became more interested in Black women intellectuals. Uh, earlier, um, you know, prior to the more traditional um, civil rights movement uh, chronology from fifty four to sixty eight. So I became interested in women active in the 20s and 30s, like uh, Anna Arnold Hedgman. And even prior to that, uh, this whole idea of the long movement thesis, wherein uh, historians argue that the civil rights movement actually uh, began before 54 and continued after 68. And so I wanted to put together a, a book or an edited volume that really Uh, gets at recording the ideas of Black women over time from the 19th century through the 20th century to just as a way, because what I found in my uh, research on Black women in the civil rights movement was there were not too many secondary sources that looked at Black women as intellectuals and um, over a broad stretch of time. And um, so it's a part of a project uh, to Sort of substantiate the idea that uh, Black women have uh, a long tradition of intellectualism. And so that's where the idea for the volume came. And I did, you know, just a traditional call for papers on HNET and basically explaining what I wanted to do with the work. And uh, the contributors, uh, you know, sent me abstracts. Uh, and from there, the project was born.
1: Uh, Now, on this point of defining intellectual, you make this point um, in the introduction that the prevailing understanding of intellectual is restrictive when it comes to the legacy of African-American thought. Um, So could you talk about how you and the contributors to this volume define this term?
2: So um, this whole idea, I think um, there's always this perennial question in my field, you know, what is intellectual history, which comes from this notion of, well, what do we mean by intellectual? This is a um, common debate. And so um, traditionally, the intellectual was often seen as someone who might be a person who is an academic, uh, a writer tied to an institution and a specific community. Uh, and oftentimes women are left out of, of, of this category and specifically Black women. And so the idea that um, women, Black women, have had uh, engagement with larger publics beyond the academy, the more traditional intellectual who might have a PhD and might be teaching in, you know, a prominent university and then producing knowledge um, from that, um, you know, um, vantage point. So this notion, um, I argue that uh, women, Black women in particular, don't have access to prominent academies. And it's a point that has been made uh, by um, the editors of Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women, edited by uh, Mia Bay, Farah Griffin, Martha S. Jones, and Barbara D. Savage. And in 2015, that book came out. So about two or three years before my book was published. And uh, this is the first edited volume by a group of historians attempting to trace the intellectual traditions of Black women. And I was at the tail end of my uh, dissertation at the time when this book came out, and it was just a necessary secondary source that I had to go back to and include to my introduction to say, here it is, you know, this important uh, edited volume that has several essays that trace Black women's uh, intellectualism and call it a tradition that's tied to the notion of an intersectional approach to empowerment that we see emerging in the early 19th century. So there's this long tradition beginning in the early 19th century of Black women's intellectualism with Mariah Stewart down to the present. And so um, the women in this volume, Bury My Heart, are among uh, the women who forged that tradition. Uh, And I think um, so that that definition is too restrictive, the traditional definition of the professor with the Ph.D. writing a book. Um, I argue that they're really different forms of intellectualism and, and it builds upon or utilizes uh, the notion that Gramsci argues, Antonio Gramsci argues that every has, everyone has a capacity to think. And so um, the organic intellectual, the public intellectual, there are different forms of intellectualism that exist. But, before, but because these Black women are living in a, a slave society and it's racial slavery, it's obviously leaving them out of many institutions and in the conversations that they assert themselves into. How do they do it? They do it through the public square. And so they do it by um, writing things down, preaching and teaching to larger publics. And so that gets us into the notion of the public intellectual. I hope that I answers your question. question.
1: Yeah, and no, I think this is such a, a timely uh, question, too, about redefining intellectualism, because we're in a time, you know, th- you know, we've had this conversation in academia for probably at least 50 years that academia is in crisis, but especially with the internet and access of people now, um, all sorts of voices that were not amplified before now have the opportunity to be heard, uh, to speak. You know, we have podcasts, websites, all sort of things, everything from Twitter to social media. Um, so I think that this the, the conversation around what it really, what intellectual and real entails and who is kind of allowed to be called an intellectual and have their voices heard is really important right now all
2: right
1: um, now, uh, th- what I want to kind of do with with our conversation is because this is an edited volume, I want to go through uh, each of the five sections and just uh, give the listeners kind of a preview. Uh, so the first part of the volume is entitled Black Women Intellectuals in the 19th and 20th Centuries. Uh, and these essays, quote, situate the voices of Black women activist intellectuals within the framework of 19th and early 20th century American reform, arguing that Black women and their ideas were central to the development of the abolitionist abolitionist, women's rights, and temperance campaigns that defined the century, close quote. So this section addresses the pathways that African American women during this period took into politics, uh, given that, as you mentioned, traditional routes were closed. So could you discuss some of the alternative ways that they entered public life and what were some of the causes that they focused on?
2: So one major feature of uh, Black public life early 19th century is the cause of uh, abolition. The abolitionist cause, which was, of course, tied to the rise of the Black church movement at the time. And so uh, many of these early women are church women and their ideas are, you know, bound up with um, African-American religiosity. And so that was one way of entering the public square. But of course, the... the Churches often said, you know, you may not speak in church, you may not um, stand up in church. So what do these women do? Women like Jorana Lee said, well, I'll write a spiritual biography. and, and what She essentially says, um, you know, God spoke to me and told me that I may speak. And uh, Mariah Stewart, who's the first woman, not only the first black woman, the first woman in American history to speak to uh, an audience of both men and women together, takes to the, the public square and says, you know, these are my ideas about uh, God and abolition. Uh, I mean, God God and slavery and um, slavery is, is wrong. And um, these women are also talking about, so one of the first major, the two major movements, I would say, is the black church movement uh, and the abolitionist movement. Um, we know many of the, um, great Black women involved in these various movements, obviously Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and so on. And so I think the Black church movement and the abolitionist movement are two of the early movements that um, Black women become involved with in the early 19th century. Uh, And um, so from the abolitionist movement to the turn of the century, um, the suffrage movement, obviously, Ida B. Wells uh, with Marsha uh, Darling's essay. And then... Um, Black women by the end of the 19th century begin to to refer to this time frame, the late 19th century, 1890s through the early 20th century as the women's era. Uh, As uh, Teresa Blue Holden notes, that these women are at that point referring to this particular time period as the women's era. And they're writing about it, not not only uh, speaking about it and giving these speeches, but they're writing it down and they're framing it as the women's era, which documents a tradition of intellectualism that is intersectional, that's concerned about race, gender, and class at the same time.
1: Uh, now, part two concerns uh, Black women intellectuals in the new Negro era. And an important force in this history is the African-American women's club movement. Um, Could you talk about this movement and the women whom it propelled into the public spotlight?
2: So the Black women's club movement in the late 19th century, early 20th century, women like Ida B. Wells uh, is very prominent here. And many historians have come to argue that when when it comes to Black leadership in the late 19th century, um, Ida B. Wells is several several by... um, biographies of her, the argument is um, like her leadership rivaled that of Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington through this women's era. And so I think um, the more obvious uh, woman propelling this is Ida B. Wells, uh, Josephine uh, St. Pierre Ruffin, and the Black Women's Club Movement that becomes prominent, Mary Church Terrell, uh, and National Association of Colored Women, um, the height of the Black Women's Club movement era is really taking off between 1890 and 1920. But these women are also, um, because of embracing an intersectional approach to empowerment, they're also engaging in um, associations like Helping to Found the NAACP. So they're, that intersectional approach that is cross-gender, cross-race, uh, cl- cross-class, Um, is a constant theme in Black women's intellectual traditions uh, through the turn of the century, through early
0: 20th century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Now, part three covers some of the lesser known women of the civil rights era. Um, And I have to say that this was probably my favorite part of the book. I really learned a lot here. So um, can you talk about who some of these women were and why have they been overlooked in the intellectual history of Black women specifically?
2: So, yes, yeah, so, so Part 3, uh, Black Women, Intellectuals, in the Civil Rights, Black Power Era. Um, I want, another thing I wanted to do with this volume is, because um, obviously there's a great deal of work that has been done um, by the time I published this on uh, Black women in history, and, um, or at least increasing amount of work uh, on individuals like Ida B. Wells. But what I wanted to do was focus on some of the women who have been overlooked and so in this part, uh, Anna Arnold Hedgman uh, is one. Uh, Polly Murray, increasing amount of work uh, being done on Polly Murray, I think. Uh, Wanda, Wanda Coleman. And then I'm looking at a group of Black women intellectuals in the National Alliance of Black Feminists. Uh, and um, Anna Arnold Hedgman is probably the least known woman, woman of the civil rights era, le- yet she lived to be Almost 91 years old, her life and her work in the civil rights movement crossed many associations uh, and um, movements. Um, In the 20s, she's organizing in Jersey City, New Jersey. She, as a member of the YWCA, she's trying to organize black women who, working class black women, um, who are working in the laundry centers at the time. And um, she's trying to organize them through the YWCA. And uh, moves on to Harlem uh, section of New York after being active in uh, New Jersey. But she's important. And I I look at her as a public intellectual. That term public intellectual, I think, applies to her. Although, you know, she does have a formal education. She has a college degree. You know, she has an honorary uh, doctoral degree. So in some ways, she meets the criteria for the more traditional uh, term or, or definition, but uh, she is the only woman uh, who helps to organize on the committee to help to organize the March on Washington in 1963. And so A. Philip Randolph, the famous la- labor leader, did ask her to join that committee, but she was the only one woman invited to join that committee. And that speaks to her prominence in black left labor politics. And so the historians who argue for the long movement thesis say there is this um, coalition among uh, white labor radicals, activists, and African Americans, uh, trade unionists between the 1920s and 1930s, who lay the foundation of the civil rights movement. So uh, on the one hand, Hedgeman is a foundational figure, and lives this extraordinary long life, and moves with with the larger struggle for black equality, and yet her story is unknown. Uh, Jennifer Scanlan's book came out about four years ago. It's the first and only biography of Hedgeman, and it's astounding. And Hedgeman knows this. She knows she's going to be erased from this history. So what she does, she sits down between 1964 and 1977, she turns out a memoir and an autobiography of her life. And in the pages of, of those uh, writings, she essentially says, she's reminding her reader constantly of who she is and where she was at, at the most prominent events in the movement. And so um, I think Polly Murray, I think, is more recognized by. Uh, historians of uh, women's history, gender history. Uh, But at the same time, there's not a great deal of uh, biographies or intellectual biographies on Pauli Murray. Only recently, right, I think, uh, in the last, say, two or three years, have we begun to see more work on uh, Pauli Murray and her activism. And these, again, are two women who were active in um, the development of, of American religion, right? Not just African-American and or Black church movement. Um, Hedgeman is a Methodist. And at the time that she's growing up, uh, her family is the only Black family living in in the town that she lives in, Anoka. Uh, And um, she is, um, you know, active across racial lines with the National Council of Churches, working with the NAACP. And so again the inter intellect- the intersectional approach to parament is still there with both of these women are the women that are featured in the third part of the book This sort of um,
1: autobiographical practice is quite interesting. You mentioned that some of the earlier uh, women intellectuals also used this uh, spiritual autobiography. So I wonder, um, are you familiar? Has any work been done maybe contextualizing uh, this uh, Black women's autobiographical practice and the larger sort of historical uh, practice of women writing about themselves and ascribing themselves into history because otherwise they would be silenced?
2: Yes. I mean, there was a long, uh, at least primarily from I think scholars of African-American literature, much of this work mm-hmm. has, has been done by scholars of American literature. I think that those working in the field of uh, historical research have con- sort of met the, the, the literary scholars in the middle around some of these questions. Um, intellectual history has a, has a connection to literary studies, you know, in part comes out of literary studies, philosophy and political history, so it's intellectual history is very interdisciplinary in a lot of right, respects. Right. So yes, there's a lot of work that's been done uh, around Black women's autobiography.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, now the next part, part four, um, focuses on gender and sexuality in the work of Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. Uh, you note that the body of scholarship around gender, family, and Black sexuality remains limited. What are some of the reasons behind this lacuna and how did Bell Hooks and Andrea Lord push back against it? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, um, and um, again, uh, more recently, you are starting to see more work um, regarding black sexuality and particularly um, transgender identity, uh, blackness and so on. In the last, I would say two years, some good work has begun to come out. Um, I think they are Are both relying on this tradition of uh, intersectionality uh, but getting into conversations about um, gender and sexuality that were not visited um, prior a great deal I think by not only black women writers and intellectuals but just by black intellectuals more generally and I think that has to do with the politics of respectability that um, permeate Black life, Black religious life, um, Black life and culture, right? Um, this whole idea of um, we have to project, project a particular um, Blackness to the public, and it can't be one that's associated with um, quote-unquote deviant sexualities, Right? And so Lord is saying, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, um, she's extending, I think, in a lot of ways, the notion of intersectionality to include sexuality, you know, beyond race, beyond gender, beyond class, expanding it. And so Bell Hooks is doing the same thing in many ways uh, and being critical of um, Black men and doing so. You know, they're not the first to do it, obviously. Uh, Zero Neil Hurston, who appears in the earlier section on the New Negro Era, the essay on Zero Neil Hurston, who's pushing back as well in her um, literature about Black society. So I think you do see, you know, intersection uh, or you do see respectability politics permeate uh, Black intellectual life in interesting ways.
1: Uh, now part five is called Black Women Intellectuals in the Public Square, uh, and there is included an essay on the intellectual work of Toni Morrison uh, of Marquis Bay and an examination of Black women in public service by Melissa Um uh, Could you discuss Bay's treatment of Morrison's intellectual legacy, particularly her challenge to established ideas about the intellectual's role?
2: So, yes, yeah, so I, I really like this essay uh, by Marquis um, he actually, uh, I, I, I remember our conversations and uh, a little bit, or via email anyway, in our conversations about this essay. I think it's a really great essay. I think um, the argument that um, that Morrison is a historical, um, she's a history writer in a lot of ways. She's a novelist, but her novels deal with historical subjects in a particular way. And, um, uh, one great criticism of Morrison, one thing I, anyway, I want, I actually thought, so this essay obviously was written before, uh, Tony Morrison passed away. So it's possible that Marquise is a little reluctant to be more critical of mm-hmm. Morrison, uh, and as most people are for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, but this notion of, um, Tony Morrison's work being difficult to read and uh, Baroque in quality. And um, so I wanted him <laughs> to be a little more critical of her, but I think at the end of the day, he lays out a really strong essay and argument about her role because she's, again, another one of the, these Black women who straddles the more traditional definition, right?, um, having formal education, you know, a professor at Princeton, but at the same time speaking to many publics, you know, she's a novelist, she's a college professor, but she's also a part of the popular imagination, right, on Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. So she's so she straddles like she's she's an, an intellectual in a traditional sense, but she's also um, at the same time a public intellectual so yeah, I, I think that's uh, one of one of my favorite essays. Um, the final essay in that section, um, structured in a way in that this actually led me to my 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 next project to just focus on the idea of black women as public intellectuals, and I was kind of striving for that at the end of the book because Morrison obviously feel feel feels or f- fills the gap of that definition in a lot of ways, where she is very much a public intellectual. And she was that before she became a college professor, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the last essay looking at um, Admiral Michelle Howard then takes us back around to the notion of everyone, even a person, Zora Neale Hurston didn't think of herself or define herself as an intellectual, but yet she was one, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Hedgman writes down you know, I'm not an intellectual yet she was one I think in a public sense a public intellectual right uh, and so why would the you know so the last essay was my attempt to demonstrate how black women are um, people of ideas no matter what space they occupy and Howard obviously um, is a woman of ideas about the power of public service and then how that's tied to one's notion of citizenship and how black women and men use the military as not just a means for, you know, economic advancement or, you know, stature in a community sort of the same way um, the black church is used, right. By the black ministers, right. Status, Mm -hmm. right. Economic uh, advancement, leadership, And so the argument there is really Michelle Howard, uh, not a intellectual in the traditional sense, but more to demonstrate how black women use public service and specifically the military to demonstrate uh, that they are human and worthy of full citizenship.
1: Uh, that actually, that brings me to a general question that I was hoping we would have time to address, and it looks like we will. So sort of you've uh, um, talked about intersectionality and the importance of intersectionality in all of these movements. So um, how did uh, these ac- activists and public intellectuals, um, including some of the earlier abolitionists that we discussed, uh, center women-specific concerns? And how did that, um, and maybe in some cases, create conflict?
2: So one of the, um, when we go back to this long tradition uh, and particularly the Black women preachers who are also writing spiritual biogra- biographies in the 1830s, 1840s, um, they are looking at um, sh- sexual violence against women as a part of their argument against slavery uh, uh, and as members of the larger abolitionist cause. And that's happening in the spiritual autobiographies, but it's obviously happening with Harriet Jacobs and her um Autobiography, and she's uh, saying, talking about um, the threat of sexual violence and sexual violence mm-hmm. that uh, Black women had to um, confront. And you see that as a common um, concern, and even down to Audre Lorde, you know, the famous um, interview that she does with James Baldwin. And she says, you know, Black women's blood are flowing in the streets, but they're also. Not only flowing in the streets, but black women have to deal with violence uh, in a patriarchal society. It's not only is a racist society, but it's uh, white supremacist patriarchy. And so to make their arguments about the violence that is done to black women, the bodily violence uh, is a it's a long it's a constant constant concern. It's a constant part of their discourse. Uh, and obviously, when you begin to turn the, the um, critique towards, as Hurston does, right, in the New Negro era, um, being critical of Black men, you know, as um, playing a part uh, in, in, and at times directing that violence towards Black women becomes controversial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, their concern, so they're concerned for... Um, gender right their concern about the bodily harm of black women uh, at the hands of both white and black men sets them in conflict with black men and then on the other hand their concern for the race sets them in conflict with uh, white women by the end of the 19th century turn of the early 20th century Uh, Now, I have also a pedagogical
1: question. So, as an educator, could you talk a bit about how you bring these topics to your college classroom?
2: Sure. So, um, obviously, many of these writings, or at least excerpts from these writings, uh, I would use as um, primary sources in you know early U.S. history one, and and down through U.S. history two. You know, Ida B. Wells and her famous Red Record. I teach a course on the Harlem Renaissance. So obviously we read um, Hurston there. Uh, and, and Hurston was also an essayist and, and, and wrote, wrote some great essays on um, race and gender um, that can easily be incorporated into not only courses on U.S. history, but also um, courses on women's history, Black women's history, Harlem Renaissance, civil rights, uh, Hedgman and her, and her two... Um, autobiographical writings can easily be brought into a course on the civil rights movement. Um, Not too much work, the work that has been done on her, you know, the, the one that I know of anyway, that I mentioned the Scanlon book um, does, it tells a necessary social history of her life. uh, But she was a writer, you know, she wrote a great deal and I haven't come across too many um, journal articles that assess those two major autobiographies that she's written or autobiographies of women who wrote during the uh, civil rights era. So those can easily be brought in as primary sources into any history class, I think, or women's Mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a bit more about uh, the project that you're working on now? So the project that I'm working on now is called a seat at the table. It's another edited volume, um, Black Women as Public Intellectuals in U.S. History and Culture. And it's, I look at it as a volume too, and it picks up where this volume leaves off by looking at the notion of the public intellectual and Black women specifically as public intellectuals. And um, so we have about 14 uh, contributors. And I focus also on the 20th century. Um, There's a foundational section that looks at uh, Black women preachers and uh, Mariah Stewart. But that's more of an um, intro part. And there's just two essays that look at the foundations of Black women's intellectual history. And then much of the book focuses on the 20th century. And interestingly enough, one of my uh, contributors uh, written an essay about Oprah Winfrey and Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual but not religious writing. Right. This whole Mm -hmm. notion of, right, I'm I'm spiritual but not religious and how Oprah has turned out books, sometimes with co-authors and sometimes not. On this idea of being spiritual, but not religious. And that has become like an an entire field in American religious studies. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
2: it's a very interesting, um, but, but focusing primarily on these, these women as um, public intellectuals.
1: Uh, that, that sounds fascinating. Uh, uh, analysis of Oprah as a public intellectual. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to reading that. Um, so is there anything that you would like to mention um, to the listeners about Bury My Heart in a Free Land that I did not touch upon?
2: Um, actually, uh, thank you so much. I just want to thank you for this, um, the sort of overview that you provided and how, uh, you know, the various sections of the book and at least mentioning the layout in the various sections and how they function. Uh, I think it's an important book. I think it helps to lay the foundation of Black women's intellectual t- traditions. I think that some folks might feel, well, well, this might seem more obvious that, uh, that these women are intellectual, but it's really not. It's an argument that has to be made mm-hmm. uh, in the academy that, that Black women and Black people more generally Uh, have ideas Uh, we possess ideas and um, and that we are uh, in fact intellectuals whether or not we're in the academy or not I mean think about one of the foremost intellectuals of the 20th century is James Baldwin right who left high school right Mm -hmm. but no one would ever say Baldwin is not an intellectual so there's where the issue of gender comes into play here Right. Well, of yep, course, Baldwin's yep. intellectual. Well, what about um, these women? Of course they are. It's it's not it doesn't seem like a matter of debate, but it sure is.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think a lot of sort of the most important academic books uh, for their ideas that we look back and say, well, that seems so obvious. Right. But it's not obvious until until the case is made. Um,
2: right. You, the case has to be made is
1: a great way to, to, to um, say it. Exactly. Well, uh, today I've been speaking with Dr. Hetty V. Williams, Assistant Professor of African-American History at Monmouth University, about her 2018 edited volume, Bury My Heart in a Free Land, Black Women Intellectuals in Modern U.S. History, and that is available from Prager. Uh, Dr. Williams, thank you very much again for joining me for this conversation and for doing this very important work.
2: Thank you for having me.